why do Christians talk so much about blood? They sing about it. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Blood, blood, blood. Why? You have to admit, as a non-Christian, or someone who is unacquainted with Christianity, all the talk about blood is weird. In fact, it's pretty bizarre. A non-Christian might think, how on earth does blood get anyone clean? Right? You get a bloody nose and you get some blood on your shirt. Your shirt did not get white as snow. It got bloody. It got bloody ruined. Right? You can't wear it anymore. You know, all this talk about blood, they talk about uh, drinking the blood of Christ. They have a vat of it somewhere in the back. Being washed in the blood of the Lamb. I mean, is there just weird practices going on here? Like, is there literal blood somewhere where if you're a Christian, you, you actually get dipped into and then out of? Why all the talk about blood? Leviticus chapter 17 has great explanatory power in this regard. It outlines for us just how blood functions in God's economy of salvation. Indeed, this chapter, which seems skippable, has for us something that is very important. Indeed, within it, we unearth riches as we recognize the importance of blood. Our main idea this morning is this. God has given blood as the means by which the lives of his people are ransomed. God has given blood as the means by which the lives of his people are ransomed. And then the exhortation is to respect all of life and to live in loyal devotion to Jesus. Our outline will be a little bit funky. We'll start in the middle of the chapter because this is kind of where everything comes together and the, and the reason and the explanation of blood is right there. And so we're going to start in verse 11 and we'll see that blood makes atonement. Then we'll look at verses 10 through 16. The main idea there is that all life belongs to the Lord. And then lastly, we'll look at the beginning and recognize that all worship belongs to the Lord. So blood makes atonement. All life belongs to the Lord, and all worship belongs to the Lord. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we come before you this morning, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, a people who recognize the great privilege it is to gather together in your name and to bring you worship and praise. We know that many of our brothers and sisters around the world and in our own country are not able to meet together this morning because of their greater numbers and the threat that it would pose to their neighbors and their families. We thank you that by virtue of our rural situation that, that we are able to continue to enjoy this great privilege of gathering together to give you worship and praise. We ask that in this time as we devote ourselves to hearing your word proclaimed, that you would change us, make us more like Christ, that you would deepen our affections for Christ, that we would have a greater regard for Christ who shed his blood for us. But we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you, or pointed it to you, to make atonement on the altar for your lives. 
since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. God's valuation of blood is pretty clear here. There are three statements that are made in verse 11. The life of a creature is in its blood. And so blood equals or represents life. God has given, is literally what the Hebrew says, has given blood to make atonement for the people on the altar. And so God has designated the blood of an animal to represent its life and to make atonement for the sins of those he would call to be his people on the altar. It is lifeblood that makes atonement. This is a wonderful gift of God. The fact that God has appointed or has given to us blood to make atonement is a big deal. And it is a big act of grace. I mean, don't don't miss this. When people bring sacrifices to God, they're having their sins atoned for. But even the ability to bring sacrifices is the result of God's gracious action. Remember that question in Leviticus, how can an unholy people live together in the presence of a holy God? It's through the sacrificial system. We've seen that outlined in the first 16 chapters of Leviticus for us. Last week we looked at the the day of atonement. So atonement is made for the people. Well, Well, how can a sinful people live in the presence of God? Blood. The life of a substitute, a substitutionary sacrifice, takes the place of the lives of the people. Rabbi Rishi said it this way, the sacrifice substituted for an individual human life or for the lives of members of the community in situations where God could have exacted the life of the offender. God accepts the blood of the sacrifices in lieu of human blood. So you can see that that penal substitutionary atonement, the life of an animal taking on the penalty of that which is the penalty that's due to the people and dying in their place, is at the very heart of the old covenant. This idea of a substitute bearing the sins of another in their place, is at the very heart of the Old Covenant, and it's at the very heart of the Gospel and of the New Covenant, where Jesus Christ, our Lord, takes on our sins and sheds His blood in our place on the cross, so that when we put our faith in Him, we can have our sins forgiven. Last week we said, Jesus is our scapegoat. Before that, we've said that Jesus is our true and greater purification offering. He cleanses our sins. Jesus is our reparation or compensation offering. Jesus is the the true fellowship offering. Jesus is the burnt offering. He dies for our sins. He cleanses us from our sins. He brings us into fellowship with God. He gives us peace with God. He pays our sin debt and reconciles us to the God we were made to know. It is his blood that makes atonement for our sins. He sheds his blood so that we don't have to shed our blood. God saves us through his work, and all of these sacrifices, all of the blood in the Old Covenant is meant to point us to the New Covenant and to Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hebrews 10 says it this way, verses 1 through 4. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. If it could, otherwise, they, they, they would have stopped being offered. Since the worshipers, purified once for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins, year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away 
sins. And then in verse 11 of that same chapter in Hebrews, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Romans 3, 22-26 explains this beautifully for us. It says, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation or as an atoning sacrifice in His blood received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. And so all this blood that is aimed at making atonement is actually teaching us about the blood of Jesus, which really does make atonement for sins. Fully and finally, once for all. All of these sacrifices are previews of the ultimate sacrifice Jesus makes on Good Friday. The blood of lambs and goats and sheep can't do anything to get rid of sin. But it is the means by which the people of God express their faith in the promises of God. And it was the means by which the Israelites enjoyed fellowship with God. And all of it looked forward to the cross of Christ when sin was actually dealt with. All of the shadows of the Old Testament point to the reality of the cross in the New Testament. It is Jesus' blood that makes atonement. And all of that kind of starts right here in Leviticus 17 where we learn the logic of this. That blood is life. And that blood makes atonement for sins. So, so we can see when we look at the cross, Jesus is losing his life so that I can keep my life. The, the message of Christianity is that Jesus died for our sins so that when we believe in him, we can have eternal life with God. And you go, eternal life, well, we die, so this, doesn't, this isn't adding up. We have to understand that physical death is a picture of what happens spiritually across eternity if we persist in rebellion against God. If we refuse to put our faith in Christ Jesus our Lord, physical death is just the tip of the iceberg. Because we will all be raised. We will all be judged. And those who are found to be in rebellion against God, who refuse to submit to Jesus as Lord, will be punished forever. And it is a right punishment. This is the penalty for disgracing disrespecting, dishonoring someone as holy and beautiful and good as the God of the universe. The punishment fits the crime. God is just. And so the the call of of Christianity is, is to turn from sin and to trust in the God that you were made for so that you can enjoy eternal life together with him and his people. The bloody cross stands at the center of Christianity. 
And of course, the cross would have no meaning apart from the resurrection, but it is the cross and the shed blood of Christ that accomplishes forgiveness of sins. In 1955, Billy Graham went to Cambridge University to preach a series of sermons. And before his arrival, uh, the English media had a bit of a field day, kind of poking fun at him. One paper even said, What in the world is this backwoods American fundamentalist doing coming to talk to our best and brightest? Graham was intimidated by the advanced criticism, and so he began to delve into papers and books and periodicals to spice up his sermons a little bit with some philosophical quotes and cultural anecdotes. And then the first four nights, he bombed. The halls were packed, people ready to listen to his message, and yet the response was tepid. His preaching did not elicit a single response. And so, on the last night, Billy Graham decided to ditch his highbrow efforts and resolved to preach on the blood and the blood alone. Anglican Pastor Dick Lucas recounts the experience. I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed room sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one side and the chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other. Now both of these men were good in many ways, but they were completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And that night, dear Billy got up and started at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible. And he talked about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all through Great St. Mary's Cathedral, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon... To everyone's shock, about 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. Lucas later met a a young Cambridge graduate, and over tea asked him, where did Christian things begin for you? Cambridge, 1955. When? Billy Graham. What night? The last night. How did it happen? The young man replied, All I remember is I walked out of great St. Mary's and for the first time in my life thinking, Christ really died for me. If you don't ever come to a realization that Jesus died for you, his death won't mean anything to you. Jesus' death will be everything to you or it will mean nothing. Non-Christian, I implore you to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ. His blood can wash away your sins. His death can be your death if you put your faith in him. No strings attached. It's it's costly, but it's free. You put your faith in Christ and all of your sins, all of them, are forgiven. And you are made righteous. You are declared righteous in the sight of God. Adopted into the family of God. Christian, never forget the reality that Christ really did die for you. He died for you. He died for my sin and for your sin. And listen, God doesn't love you, Christian, because of Jesus' death. Are you with me? 
God does not love you, Christian, because of Jesus' death. No, Jesus died because God loves you. You see, the root of the bloody cross is God's love for you. Jesus came to die because God loved you. Because in Christ, Ephesians 1, right? Before the foundation of the world, God said, I'm going to save him. I'm going to save her from the condemnation they deserve. This is God's great love and God's great grace. Jesus bled for you because God set his heart on you. Don't get over this reality of the incredible, gracious love of God. And non-Christian, we implore you, come to Christ. Come to know this great love with which he has loved us. The source of the cross is God's great love. And so we see that blood is life here in Leviticus. And that means that because blood is life and all of life belongs to the Lord, that to misuse blood is a great offense. Look with me at verses 10 through 16. Anyone from the house of Israel or from the resident aliens who reside among them who eats any blood, I, I being God, will turn against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of every creature is in its blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you and no alien who resides among you may eat blood. Any Israelite or alien residing among them who hunts down a wild animal or bird that may be eaten must drain its blood and cover it with dirt since the life of every creature is in its blood. I have told the Israelites, you are not to eat the blood of any creature, because the life of every creature is in its blood. Whoever eats it must be cut off. Every person, whether the native or the resident alien, who eats an animal that died a natural death or was mauled by wild beasts, is to wash his clothes and bathe with water and he will remain clean until evening. Then he will be clean. But if he does not wash his clothes and bathe himself, he will bear his iniquity. And so these verses once more show to us the value of life. Blood is life, and blood is not to be misused. And so they have some instructions here which anticipate questions that the Israelites may have had, right? So we're going to get to it, but early on in this chapter, the Lord says, anything you kill to eat that's a sacrificial domestic animal, a ox, which is a bull, I learned it's a castrated bull for those of you who are not um, agriculturally inclined as I am, ox, bull, kind of the same thing. Uh, So no bulls, no sheep, and there's one more, no goats can be altered anywhere, but it can be offered anywhere but the altar. And we're going to get to that in a second. And so the question comes, well, what about wild animals? Animals that we don't just have around our homes that are domestic. Do we have to bring them to the tabernacle or are we allowed to to hunt and kill them and eat them? And the answer comes, yeah, you you can eat them. You, you uh, You can hunt an animal and once you kill it, you got to drain its blood first because the blood belongs to the Lord. And by draining its blood, you're respecting life, you're respecting God, then you cover the blood with dirt, and you can go ahead and eat it. Same thing with an animal that you find just dead. Right? You come across it and it's dead, go ahead, don't really know what's, gonna ha- what's happened to the blood, so you can eat it, but you're going to be unclean till evening. And then, you know, go through the purification process and you can be made clean again. 
Remember, it's not sinful to become impure. It's sinful to fail to deal with the impurity. And so what this means is if you are driving along in your pickup truck and you see a deer that's dead along the side of the road, and you're from West Virginia like I am, it's perfectly okay to pick that deer up, put it in the bed of the pickup, take it home, and grill it up. All right, you're good to go. You can be impure till evening, but you can, you can take care of that. Not a big deal. <coughs> the last scenario is that of an animal that's torn by wild beasts. And this actually only applies to the resident alien. Because native Israelites are elsewhere prohibited from eating an animal that was torn apart by another animal. That's in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. And so if an animal's torn apart and you are not a native Israelite, well, then you can go ahead and you can eat that animal, but you're going to be unclean until evening and you need to deal with that uncleanliness. And so we ask, why, like what, what do we learn from these particular laws? Well, it's not that, that eating blood sausage is wrong, right? That's not my favorite thing. But this side of the cross, it's, it's good. Right? We, we recognize, as we did in Leviticus 11, if you want more on this, you can go there, that Jesus has declared all foods clean, which means it's a right and holy thing to eat a medium-rare steak and to do it to the glory of God. Praise God. I think what we are to learn from this, though, it's not about eating practices per se, but about honoring God in all of life. The blood is life. And you see, to dishonor the life of a creature is to dishonor God. As Christians, we want to be those who honor all of life because all of life belongs to our Lord. And that means, that means plant life and animal life and especially human life. <clears throat> and so Christians are people who care for the environment, who steward our earthly resources in such a way as to honor God and to honor life. These Christians are people who treat animals humanely. And it means that Christians are people who care for other people, who love their neighbors. It means that we honor life from the very moment of conception until the very last breath. It means we don't kill, which is not popular in our culture of death, where, where things that cause death to others, usually the most dependent in our society, have become celebrated. And movements to, to make them legal have become accelerated. The first thing I think about is euthanasia. Like euthanasia is the taking of a human life. And oftentimes it's couched as this is death with dignity and, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. People that usually do it are older and so it's okay. But the sixth commandment has not left that option open to us. God forbids the killing of any human being with the exception of a few circumstances. Unless it's capital punishment, it's death for a crime. Self-defense is a time when it's justified to kill. Or just war. Outside of those three, we are not permitted to take life. Euthanasia is the taking of a human life. And it does not honor God. Indeed, it dishonors Him. And I'm not, not talking here about, well, you know, you're getting up there and so you have a, a DNR, a do not resuscitate, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm not, not talking about um, going, foregoing every possible treatment to keep yourself alive. That's, that's different. But we're talking about intentional action aimed at ending life. And so we, we, are, we are free to decide about different kinds of medical treatment even if it's no treatment, but we are not free to decide to kill. We believe that life matters. 
We believe that, that men and women are made in the image of God. They bear the Imago Dei from the moment of conception until the last breath leaves their lung. They, who people, represent who God is. We are, are God's imagers, and that means that human life is precious and it is priceless, and it's not ours to take away. Human beings are infinitely valuable and they bear the status of God's image bearers regardless of age, regardless of size, regardless of mental capabilities or abilities. And so the idea that we would kill someone because, well, the insurance money is up, the insurance doesn't want to pay to keep them alive or, you know, at the nursing home any longer, and so we should just go ahead and the drugs to take them out are actually available, and they're covered by the insurance. That's abhorrent. The idea that we would kill someone simply because they want to die or because they are in pain is ungodly. It might seem merciful to us, but it's disobedient to God. Sometimes the most loving and caring thing you can do for someone is to suffer with them and to hold their hand. All of life is valuable, even, even at the end of life, when someone is entirely dependent, just as they are at the beginning of life. Human life is valuable. And again, that's controversial to say. I mean, our, our culture lauds abortion as a right and as human progress. Celebrate it. We have a pandemic right now. And we are all are social distancing and self-quarantining and you know, washing our hands. You go, why? Well, this is an expression of care for one another, for our neighbors. We don't want other people to get sick. And it's expression of care, especially for our elderly neighbors whom the virus tends to kill more quickly. Well, this is a good thing. This is what, what Christians ought to do. We want to care about others. And yet I can't help but have my heart turned at the strange juxtaposition about how many thousands of infants are killed regularly every month. How many millions are killed every year in, the, in abortion. And no, no one bats an eye. Oh, this is normal. Culture cel celebrating death. You know, the, high, the highest good, it is thought, is self-autonomy. Do what you want to do. You do you. Don't care about anyone else. You know, let it go. Be who you are. And if other people get hurt in the process, it doesn't matter. Don't let anyone stand in your way of accomplishing your dreams, even if it's your own child. Remove that roadblock. That is devilish thinking. And we, as Christians, cannot think this way. We have to consciously reject the culture of death. We have to intentionally celebrate life. And we want to be ready to care for the elderly. We want to, to care for young mothers and high-risk pregnancies. We want to care for their children. And how that, how that expresses itself can look a, a bunch of different ways, but we must be those who care. Some of the ways we, we can care for those who might be... Uh, in these situations, is to simply build relationships. Especially with our elderly, I think this is really important before they get to a point where euthanasia seems like it might even be an option or a good option for them, to be friends with them. Send cards and, and, and flowers. And I think Chelsea sent some of you flowers over the past week, and so I don't want to, that doesn't mean you're elderly if you got flowers from me, uh, or from my family, I should say. Trying to pigeonhole anybody, but, but do send cards, send flowers and, and messages and, and phone calls. Love people that are in a different phase of life than you. 
Build relationship. Open your hearts and your homes. And not only to elderly folks, and especially elderly folks of our congregation, but to young mothers and their children. You know, be ready to adopt. Be ready to foster. These are ways we can care. Foster care and adoption are, are wonderful things. They really do help. Maybe you help foster parents. Many of you have helped Chelsea and I as we've walked through that process a few times now. Maybe it means uh, that you volunteer time at the Pregnancy Support Center or that you give financially to a Pregnancy Support Center or that, hey, you find out who in our community needs some financial help to make ends meet and you, and you do that. Most importantly, we want to pray for these people. We want to pray that those who find themselves in situations where they feel like death is a good choice for them or for their child, that we, want, we want to pray that, that God would, would lead them a different direction. That they would recognize there's a better way. That there are a group of people who love them and care for them and want what's best for them. We're not going to judge them because they're dealing with these difficult issues, but a group of people that love them because they love God. group of people that respect all of life because all of life belongs to the Lord. We also see that the penalty for disrespecting life is a heavy one. Did you see that in verse 10? Anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them who eats any blood... I, the Lord God, will turn against that person and cut him off. To be cut off means to be exiled from the community permanently. And more typically, the second thing it means is could be premature death, is how some commentators put it. And typically, if God is the one taking the action rather than the community on behalf of God, when God takes the action, he is killing the person. He's taking their life, cutting them off. But this is a steep penalty because life is valuable. And we might ask, well, what is, you know, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to misuse blood, right? In their, in their context, like, so I eat blood, you know, I, my steak is medium rare, and I could potentially be killed. Or as we're about to see, if I offer a sacrifice somewhere other than the tabernacle, and if I sacrifice my bull uh, at my house and then just eat it there instead of going to the tabernacle, the penalty is being cut off. Well, what's, I mean, what's the big deal? Well, look with me at the first 10 verses here, nine verses. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the Israelites and tell them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Anyone from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox, sheep, or goat in the camp, or slaughters it outside the camp, instead of bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before his tabernacle, that person will be considered guilty. He has shed blood and is to be cut off from the people. And so that, that's reason number one. He's shed blood and blood is life and all of life belongs to the Lord. And so by, by killing this thing in a place that God hasn't designated, he's dishonored God and he's dishonored life. So that's reason number one. He's going to be cut off from the people. But then uh, we get some more clarity here. Verse five. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices that they have been offering in the open country. They're to bring them to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and offer them as fellowship sacrifices to the Lord. Remember fellowship sacrifice? I offer it, God gets a part, priest gets the part, and then I get the rest, and I can share it with whoever I want. I take a little doggy bag, perhaps, home if I even want to. But I get to eat it. Offer them as fellowship offerings to the Lord. The priest will then splatter the blood on the Lord's altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and burn the fat 
as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then look at verse 7. They must no longer offer their sacrifices to the goat demons that they have prostituted or whored themselves with. This will be a permanent statute for them throughout their generations. Say to them, anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice but does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord, that person is to be cut off from his people. And so now the situation is more clear. The people are taking their domestic animals that are to be offered and sacrificed to the Lord their God at the tabernacle, and they are sacrificing them to false gods, to idols, to counterfeit gods, to goat demons. And if, if you're like me, you read that and you are kind of appalled. How, how on earth could this group of people who was brought out of Egypt by the wonders and mighty signs that God did there, this, this group of people who took shelter beneath the blood of a lamb while the firstborn of everyone in Egypt was killed and then was led out through the Red Sea when it was parted and saw Sinai covered with, with a great cloud of darkness and heard the trumpets and God's voice speak to them in thunder. How can this group of people make sacrifices to false gods? How can the, this group of people who was punished when they tried to worship a golden calf, how can, they, how can they turn around and still betray the Lord their God, committing spiritual adultery and worship false gods? And I sit back and I read that and I go, how could they do this? And then I realize they're not so... They're not so distant and different from you and I. I mean, sure, most of us are not sacrificing to goat demons during the week. And some of you, I don't know, but, but most of us, we're not, we're not doing that. But at the same time, I go, we are in a different way. Our goat demons are just not physical, they're They're spiritual. Our idols are, are typically not things that are right in front of us that we can see and touch. We typically hide them better in our hearts. Love John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. And what he meant by that is we can take absolutely anything and turn it into a false god that we worship. We, we all have these counterfeit gods. Politics, health, being right, being in control of absolutely every aspect of our lives, safety, family, popularity, hobbies, success, pleasure, possessions, approval. I think any number of things in this whole world, typically good things, and we turn those good things into goat demons that we worship. And you go, well, how do I do that? We do that by living for those things. What you live for, what occupies the highest place in your affections is your functional savior. You take those counterfeit gods like approval and you say, all right, here's the real God and I'm going to take my desire for approval and I'm going to put it right here on top. That's what idolatry is. It's the disordering of your affections. And so you start living for approval, the approval of people, rather than the approval of God. And so it's, it's really easy to, to compromise your position to what everybody else thinks is popular. Or maybe you, you live for, for power and success, and so, so you find your security in being able to control all the people in your life. Your family, I mean, you would never say it that way, but you, you look for you find that you're, the only time you're able to sit down and be at peace at night is when you know, all right, all of my fam this family member's here, that family member's there, everybody's safe, and I've got this totally under control. Or maybe even hobbies, you know, just following sports, and that's it's more important to you than the Lord. You know, anything can become an idol. And so many of us turn these good things into to goat 
with goat demons. And it's stupid. It's foolish to worship counterfeit gods. If some of you are sitting there going, you know what, he didn't really identify anything that I struggle with, didn't hit on any of my idols. Let me try to help you figure out what your own is. Uh, you guys know what a Mad Lib is, right? This is a little older now. I don't think kids do Mad Libs anymore. But it's a sentence and there's a blank in the sentence and you fill in the sentence. So uh, you're going to fill in the blank and you're not going to shout it out because that might be embarrassing. But I'm going to give you a Mad Lib. So, so if I just had, that's the blank, then I would be happy. What you put in the blank is a counterfeit God. It's your goat demon that you are tempted to worship instead of the God who is. Or maybe I gave you a second one. Because I have blank, I am happy. What you put in the blank is your counterfeit God. It is your goat demon. Friends, we must guard ourselves against idolatry. Our sin is so subtle and is always causing us to look away from Jesus and to the world. It's so easy to slip into worshiping and living for false idols. Guard yourselves. Because God is worthy of and deserves exclusive devotion. That's why Jesus, like, to say yes to Jesus means to say no to all the other false gods in the world. The image that, that we get of the relationship between God and his people in the New Testament in Ephesians 5 is that Jesus is cast in the role of husband and the church is cast in the role of wife. This is an exclusive covenant relationship. It's a covenant marriage. It's not an open marriage where, you know, just go worship however you want, whenever you want, as long as you come back home at the end of the day. No, this is exclusive Devotion that God calls us to. You shall have no other gods besides me. Commandment one. He is worthy of that devotion because he has purchased us, his people, back from the brink of death. He has ransomed us from the wrath that we deserve. And the same was true in Israel. When they were brought out of Egypt, it was by God's mighty hand through the blood of a Passover lamb. It's true on the Day of Atonement as they lived in God's presence. They could live in God's presence only when the blood of a substitute was shed. It's true for us. We are only saved. We can only live in God's presence when we come to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. The true and final Passover lamb who shed his blood on the final day of atonement and died for us, for our sins, so that we might live and live with him. It is this wonderful irony that in Leviticus, in order to respect God and to respect life, the people are not to eat any blood. And yet on this side of the cross, in order for us to honor God and to have life, eternal life, we must drink blood. Jesus says in John 6, to a Jewish audience who has spent their lives not eating blood. Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live 
because of me. God has given blood as the means by which the lives of his people are ransomed. And when we hear the words of Jesus, this is my blood. When we take the cup of the Lord's Supper and drink, we are reminded of the cost of our salvation as we feed upon Christ our Lord and declare his death and resurrection together. Friends, God has accomplished our salvation through the precious blood of Christ. And so we say, why do Christians talk about blood so much? Because blood is life. And God became a man and poured out his blood so that we might have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your great plan of salvation. We thank you for your love, which led you to send Jesus to live a perfect life in our place, to die a substitutionary death in our place, to rise from the dead so that we might have a place in your family. God, we thank you that by faith in him, we can have our sins forgiven. That we can be free from death. He is the one who holds the keys of death and of Hades. He is master of the seas. He is master of heaven. He is our Lord and King. He is our only hope in life and death. And to him we give praise and honor. But we love you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.